<laughs> I want you. Okay, hold on. I want you to imagine you've opened your fortune cookie. Fill your cake stand with art, house with dirt, and your birthday cards with hair. It's the new Bible. There. Know the system you're messing with before you mess with it. Know the system you're messing with before. You... Yes. That's it. Check. Done. That was the fastest one yet. Is it worth the wait? Hello, and welcome to Angriement, our podcast with me, Catherine. And me, Michelle. And on our podcast, called Angriement, we bring you three things every fortnight, and those three things are... A pop culture thing. Oh, I skipped a weird thing. A weird thing. A pop culture thing. And a research thing. It's because in that moment, I was like, okay, when when we're done with this, I'm going to say, wow, we've never been so smooth. And because I thought that, <laughs> you broke that thought went right reconnection, reconnection. Yep, I tripped you up. Oh, good, good. Well, there you go. That's more important. I was like, wow, this is this is just lifeless almost. What happened to us? We we've been complaining for over half an hour to one another. But okay, okay, good. That made me feel better. I'm like, oh no, we both just went into robot mode. So we take some sort of meaningful takeaway to go about your days and weeks with. Yeah. And fortune cookie. Yes. To guide you. What episode is this? 48. Getting it way is. too close to 50 with no plan. <laughs> I thought it was still 47. So, uh oh. I know. Okay, guys, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? They're going to throw us a party, aren't they? Didn't we decide that last time? Yes. I don't know. People, they don't even know when we record the listeners. So they're going to have to be that real. That just means they have to throw several clever. parties. <laughs> When it's Multiple around the parties. time for our 50th episode, you just have to throw us a party every day so that it will catch us. <laughs> exactly. So, okay. What is your weird thing on this, our 48th So Close episode? So, you know how my like guilty pleasure is joining all these weird Facebook groups and then never participating in them and just watching the just antics unfold. Yeah. And I just lurk in a bunch of very specific Facebook groups. So I don't know how I got in this one. It's a pretty recent one for me. I joined one that's like, I'm over 30. Explain this to me. Like it's nice. A translation for people who, you know, aren't speaking the Gen Z language and, 
there's some Gen Z people in there who will tell you what things mean. A lot of it is like, what is this emoji and when should I use it? Which is, you know, which is really fun. <laughs> I was trying, I was trying to think like, what would I need this for? And yeah, because emojis often, we were just talking about this. I keep using the melting emoji and somebody younger than me was like, I don't think that means what you think that means. Which yeah. is so weird because aren't emojis just supposed to be open? Like, yeah, open interpretation, but they take on their own yeah. grammar. I mean, like I guess not technically grammar, but like they have a lexicon and the people who guide that lexicon are younger than us and they're using yeah. them more frequently. I mean, they have the, the ethos to say what they mean. And if I don't know, then I just look silly like with like the, like the boomers who end every sentence with lol and you're like oh no no that wasn't funny don't say that and they're like i thought it meant lots of love right like uh, yeah exactly yeah. and i'm like oh yeah. no that's me that's me now we're lots of love now oh. i don't know if i told you this on the podcast or off but i just keep that moment of feeling old i went to a nice restaurant in my new city where i live brisbane and i couldn't understand how the bathroom door worked and also, I have bad night vision now that I'm old, and so I couldn't really see it, and I couldn't lock the door, and people kept opening the door, and the music was very fist pump, and I just felt, I felt like, you know, using the laugh crying emoji, which you, marks you as very old now. Yeah, no, I'm not, well, so... They're not getting my laugh crying emoji, and they're also not getting me on my weird thing here. So, in that Facebook group, Somebody posted, so I went to a swimming pool today and a whole bunch of kids were wearing socks. They were like, not like swim shoes, but socks. And it just seems really like uncomfortable to walk around in wet socks. And they were swimming in socks and like hanging out of the pool in socks that were wet from having been swimming in them. They're like, what am I missing here? They, 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 they weren't together. So it wasn't like a group of kids doing it. Like it was like a whole bunch of different kids were all doing it. And so in the comments, someone posted this Huffington Post article that I just really appreciate the depth and seriousness of it. Like it, it's, it is titled Gen Z won't let anyone see their feet. Here's why. <laughs> Sorry. Immediately, I think things clicked into place. And that is such a weird feeling because I would have never gotten there. I would have never gotten there. But now I'm like, oh, okay. It's just like, it's a feet pick. <laughs> but it doesn't only apply. Because that I know about in celebrities. Celebrities are like, I'm not going to show my feet. You get weird. How bizarre that that's gone down to like everyone. So I have to read you some passages yes, from this. This is, this is an article by yes, Talia Ergus in, in Huff. Uh, but it's a really fun article. Like you should read it in its entirety. So Michelle is a millennial and a teacher. And she said um, that she noticed that the kids were all wearing socks with like sandals, like with dressy sandals, with slides, with Crocs. And she's like, what is happening? Um, and they take offense when other people show their feet. She said, usually I hear miss the dogs are barking or miss for free. <laughs> you just giving out those free foot pics. <laughs> <laughs> <Miss> for free. <laughs> 
so there's a TikTok hashtag for dogs out. <laughs> it's about visible toes. TikTokers post clips of dog attacks, which are when people are touched against their will by someone's feet. Um, and so this is just like looking at how different fashion trends and different like sexualization of different parts of the body like sometimes crop tops are fine and sometimes we're like oh no you can't show that and sometimes shorts are so short that like butt cheeks are hanging out sometimes we're like, absolutely not and so there's just these different trends and they're like but it's not just that so this is the argument that this article makes is that it's very specifically about the way that they have seen feet sexualized in so many so much internet lore right and so they wow. feel like it's a fetish that they don't want to be fetishized and they don't want you know to like it's almost like an exploitative thing like they don't want to feel exploited and so they they hide their dogs just having your feet out yeah um the mix of like the sexualization fetishization of feet but mixed with for profit like the capital yes. of that like that like well it's not just, it's not I'm a prude. It's that if I'm going to do it, I need to get paid. Yeah, no. So here, the indeed. The for free. Oh. It, indeed, a common chide in response to bare feet seen on social media or out in the wild is, quote, no free feet. The implication <laughs> is that the person with exposed feet is relinquishing the opportunity to profit from a monetizable commodity, the sight of their feet. So yeah, so not only is it like, I don't want to feel exploited in public, but like, if I'm going to be exploited, I'm going to get the benefit of it, right? Like if you're going to, if you are going to look at my feet in a way that I maybe don't want you to, you're going to have to pay me. Um, And it's just, yeah. If you're a public figure, however, your feet are up for grabs for free on WikiFeet, a fetish website dedicated to curating snaps of celebrities, arches, soles, or toes without opaque shoes and socks. WikiFeet. That I knew about WikiFeet, but did not know that that had trickled down into mainstream use. Wow. I'm rethinking. I'm not going to stop doing it, but I'm like, oh, do not come for my Birkenstocks. Oh, I am 100% not wearing socks with sandals. I I guess that means I'm giving it away for free. So giving it away for free, you foot whore. Like I cannot. I I miss. I, I wear a sock miss for free. For free. <laughs> At the same time, I just love that. I do. There's so many things. As much as I don't like being walked in on in bathrooms because I can't understand doors, there are some real joys of growing older, and I delight in stuff like this. That like I in my comfy Birkenstocks can look crazy. But then kids running around in socks at, in a pool, pool does look crazy to me, right? Yeah. Like both things can be true. And, and, I'm and it's also, so cool. I'm not using the dead emoji instead of the laughing face emoji. No. I don't care if I'm old. I've earned my laughing face emoji. And I, you know, if I'm doing social justice harms with my out of place points of view, I'm willing to listen and learn and change. But my feet will be bare and my emojis will be laughing and crying. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to try to look more for things like that now that just, I feel like that's maybe a pre, 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 not connection, but like fortune cookie about something about like, look around for the socked feed look for or something. Socks socks feet. feet can probably come in handy here. Yes. Look for wet socks on feet, free feet. Versus wet socks. 
if you want to pay for the if you want to pay for the feet if you want to get paid for your feet your socks have to be wet (laughs) there done okay bye we don't even need to tell you the rest of it (laughs) no more weird things um i love that okay so my weird thing is this is hilarious how this kind of matches up because i am going very nostalgic for our youth so about the time we would probably be wearing socks on our feet if we lived today if we live today, we're both ghosts. Unlike, unlike the fossils <laughs> we have become. I know. We're, uh, we're uh, what, what are the puppets, the Muppet puppets in the theater? Oh, the, yeah, the cranky Statler and yeah. Settler and Waldorf. Yeah, that's who we are now. But if they were dead and ghosts. So, which I'm fine with. I look forward to old age um, very much. So, Okay. My weird thing is about our youth and nostalgia for that in a way. It actually comes from when I was doing my research. I came upon a reference to this thing and I was shocked because I was doing research that was taking place in like early 1900s, late 1800s. And I did not think these existed then. And so then this is kind of a little bit of research in my weird thing because I wanted to look into the history of them. But basically my weird thing is about devil sticks do you remember devil sticks devil sticks do you not know devil sticks the juggling sticks oh i do i vaguely i have a vague memory of this michelle and i are both making a motion that could look like it it had like a like thicker stick with like it was like two sticks yeah and then the middle stick had like a like a leathery flowery offshoot which i learned that there are devil sticks and flower sticks. And what we all had were actually flower sticks, not devil sticks, because that little um, leathery flower decoration at the end of either of them made it easier to use them. And those are flower sticks. But yeah, they were, um, there's juggling sticks and they were a huge trend in the 90s. I had some, I remember like begging and begging for them and getting them. And I remember like standing in, the living room watching the Beatles anthology practicing my devil sticks so I was doing this research from a research thing and came upon a reference to devil sticks in the late 1800s and I was like wow for some reason I just assumed they popped into being in 1990 and everyone loved them but they're very old and almost everyone at least like juggling historians, which I also learned are a thing, because of course there should be historians for everything. Um, But juggling historians agreed that they are very, very, very old, older than we probably have like recorded proof of them. And they think most people agree that they have Asian origins of some sort, but the very first recorded instance that's all that's agreed upon is a picture of the brothers Muti and Madua Sam printed in 1820 from Prague. And they said that they did Chinese stick play, although they themselves were of Indian heritage. And um, that's the first recorded like image or note of devil sticks. And then they became really, really, really popular at the end of the 19th century. And there was someone named Joseph Walenda who had a traveling show and he walked a tightrope while doing juggling or deviling, whatever that motion would be called, um, with them on fire. And then... Didn't you also have a fire eating kit? 
I learned how to eat fire at a party once where a parrot was on my shoulder. Okay. I thought I, th- I, have, was... I have this memory of you with like a little kit. No? Did I make this up? I think you made that up. Maybe. Well, not made it up. Maybe a different friend. You have many interesting friends. I think but you, I did I think you were the only fire eater friend. I did eat fire several times because I had a friend in North Carolina who did that and was a DJ and did both things at once and owned a parrot. So it was a party one night where it seems like I too learned many how things to, eat to do fire. at once. Too many things. That parrot was asking for trouble. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you insert a parrot into almost any other task, it there's imminent risk. Doing the dishes, add a parrot. Or the parrot. Risky. So, problem. <laughs> I will say the parrot, I did not hurt the parrot. The parrot lived a long parrot. Parrots live long lives, so that parrot is fine. Um, For me, I don't know. So, so yes. Sorry. I got, I, this I got is you not, <laughs> I know. I'm just remembering those days. If we're talking about, like, feeling old, I'm like, yeah. When was I, when was I ever just eating fire and flying with parrots um so, those were the days with our toes out <laughs> yeah yeah no one wanted to pay for our feet and then i but no a million emotions are going through my head which is like but no i'm so much happier now than i was then i'm more myself i have nicer things i'm settled michelle you should give me a look because i just complained for half an hour about how i feel unsettled <laughs> but i'm more settled than i was in grad school so um this is not my research thing, devil sticks, but I will say that the first known women to devil stick were part of the Henri troupe, Adele and Rosa Henri in 1906. And they were popularized as an act on television in 1939 by George Latour. And I am going to take a second to send you this clip if you want to play any of it. See, I found all these YouTube clips and I'll put them in the show notes of people on television performing with devil sticks and as someone who didn't know the history and played with them in the 90s they seem like such a hacky sack right they were part of this like 70s throwback it's like watching people do hacky sack on tv almost but devil sticks originated with professional jugglers it was part of a professional i'm watching the video you just sent me he's dressed so fancy for what doesn't strike me as a particularly fancy act no and so we come to our last line a study in jugology by that eminent professor, George Latour. Ah, oh, no. Here's a trick i got to tell you about. You know, I learned this trick when I was going to college. Believe me, that was 20 of the happiest years of my life. In fact, I almost got through. Oh, now I can, I'll tell you, I can do, hold one of these on top of the other once in a while. Let's see you do it, George. And a boy. Stick it, Jerry. Ha, ha, ha. Don Cleverly's Chinese. You know, I'm supposed to do a juggling act out here. Evidently, she knows a lot of jugglers. That's George Latour, not to be confused with the painter George de Latour, but he popularized them and changed up because he used pool cues instead of devil sticks, which were much bigger and much more difficult. And then there was a whole fad of people using sports equipment to devil stick and i will put them in the show notes again but there was one with a tennis racket and the piero brothers use ski equipment so 
in the mid 1900s, 1939 to 1960, people, professional jugglers went on TV and used sports equipment to devil stick, which is just, it's fun and it's weird. I don't, don't want to like, I'm, I'm sure that what this man is doing is a very difficult task, but I but cannot doesn't do. doesn't it look stupid? It just doesn't look very impressive. It's like, watch me move this stick back and forth several times. Like, Thank you. Because I watch these. And I mean, he's spinning me it now. It, that's a little cooler. but it gets, it gets better, but for a long time, it's just, just devil sticking with pool cues. And as someone, like I said, who stood in my living room practicing my devil sticks, I'm like, meh, I can do that. So... I tried to find out um, if these are such an old thing that are part of a professional juggling act. What was what caused the 1990s craze? And I couldn't really find any particular information. I do remember yo-yos were really cool then, too. I had a yo-yo that I practiced. And I do think that it was um, in the 70s, in the 1970s, they exploded in popularity for non-professional use and home use. And so a lot of people in the 1970s were devil sticking. And of course, you and I, as good Delia's citizens know, that in the 90s, there was a big 70s throwback. Like you had some very cool inflatable furniture and beaded curtains. Just so, like now, there's a big 90s throwback. So I think yeah. it's a, just, you know, it's a loop. Trends are cyclical. Um yeah. So basically, I think this was the best I could get at was this was part of that 70s throwback. And so maybe it's about to come back. I think this is a call to bring back devil sticks. They, also, I did find that someone named Todd Strong, who writes a lot of like how to books on juggling, published a book about devil sticks in 1990. OK. And so maybe that kind of started to disseminate it. Again, this is not my research thing, but I do have a fun fact about, because my weird thing is that devil sticks are weird. But then another weird fact is that um, someone named Benjamin Peirce, who was an American mathematician and taught at Harvard. I don't know math very well, so I, we've talked about that a lot. I don't know if what he did and is famous for will make sense to anyone or if it's a big deal, but I'm going to read to you what he is known for which is in number theory he proved there is no odd perfect number with fewer than four prime factors sounds important I, cool. i'm impressed sounds very important he also did a lot for associative algebras but i don't care this isn't my research thing but what i do know so anyway i'm taught why am i talking about this mathematician he wrote an entire mathematics paper about devil sticks and why they work and it's called The Devil on Two Sticks, which very funny, especially if you look this guy up. He's like a big bearded old man. But I do know, I don't know much about him. I don't know much about math. What I do know is that man's son is Charles fucking Sanders Purse, who I teach all the time. I don't know if you know Charles Sanders Purse, but he is one of the fathers of semiotics. And every time I teach theories and methods of art history, I have to teach him. I like teaching semiotics and stuff, but him and Saussure, it's person Saussure that I have to teach for semiotics. And it just made me laugh. And I'm like, huh, I wonder if this guy is related to him. And he is his father. So that's it. That's in the weird research world. Yeah. So I, my weird thing is devil sticks and 
I think we should bring them back. More people should go out barefoot in the park and play with devil sticks. I'm just gonna clash all of the all of the eras at once. Cause yeah, like I'm a not, rip I'm not in the saying time space continuum. I'm not saying the youth should do devil sticks. I'm saying people our age, people approaching your 40s or in your 40s, go to the go park. Do it. Go get some devil sticks. So yeah. Our time is now. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Rise up. <laughs> get your foam rubber platform slides and do not wear socks with them. Okay, so let's go to pop culture. Pop culture. My pop culture thing is um I actually the way this came about is you talked about balloon last time and remember how I had talked about combat oh, juggling. Man. So my friend who had sent me combat juggling, I had to send her the video of balloon. Um, and so then we just started, you know, just sharing fun things. And she shared this link with me about Japan's huge culture for mascots. And um, so let me, so this is an article called A Look Inside Japan's Obsession with Bizarre Mascots by James Detour, which I will put in the show notes. And so it's just a look into how Japan has mascots for like everything. So, you know, we here in America tend to have mascots for um, some consumer brands mostly those that are aimed at kids you know i'm thinking like tony the tiger or what everything i'm thinking the of duolingo now is owl the duolingo owl which isn't that much of a kids consumerist thing but it's weird um and 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 sports mascots obviously of right course. we have a ton yeah, of those yeah. um but in japan everything has has a mascot with their brand like governments like local governments have mascots and oh, that's cool local produce and just cities like so just there's just mascots everywhere um, that is amazing because i just saw someone like tweeted or something somewhere about gritty who is you know the oh, hockey yeah, yeah. gritty comes mascot. up in this article yeah and someone was like i hate that gritty is attached to a hockey team cities should just have monsters running around and mascots but you're saying japan does japan does and it's called um yurukara which i hope i pronounced right i looked up the pronunciation ahead of time but i'm still not very good at the you know accented so um yurukara and there was an there was a japanese artist junmira was widely credited with coining that term in 2009 and outlined three aspects of a yurukara mascot one, it must convey a strong message of love for one's hometown. Two, its movements should be unique and unstable or awkward. Three, it should be unsophisticated or <laughs> laid back and lovable. So those are the qualities of these mascots. Um, and it has been wildly financially successful. So um, there was a, a town that created a samurai cat. For, to mark the, its 400th anniversary. This was in 2007. And people flocked to see it, generating more than $200 million in tourism. So they think that wow. is the spark of it becoming such a popular thing because everybody wanted a piece of that. Like, oh, people love this. Let's let's give it to them. Yeah. And so um, sales, <laughs> merchandise sales reached $16 billion in 2012. And people just 
continue to very much consume like plushies and apparel and food and toys like anything that is branded with their mascot for the things that they are loving and familiar with um and so there is a a i guess it's now an x account but a previously known as twitter account by Ugh. chris Carlier. Ne- that's another thing i will never stop using crying emoji cry laughing i will never i can't call it x i can't do it it's it's just ridiculous it's stupid. i don't think i don't think that's a generational thing i think that that's a terrible marketing plant but yeah um yeah. so maybe it needs a mascot maybe if there's an x mascot i would have no problem i mean it had a mascot it had a oh it did blue bird <laughs> Have you seen them all the Monty Python memes that are like the Twitter bird in a cage? It's that is an X bird. <laughs> I have not. And now I'm mad about the uh, whatever record of the internet I'm on for not showing it to me. So this is this um Mondo Mascots is the account. And I'm gonna pull some up to show you here in a moment. Um, and I just love this quote because he has spoken to many of the people inside the costumes of these mascots. They never reveal their identities and they always speak in character and only for short Aww. periods of time. Um, mm-hmm. and for some of the bigger mascots, it's a full-time job to just go and make public appearances in character Aww. as the mascots. But I'm very, very interested in the fact that they are now concerned that it, they're for an oversaturation, that too many things are making mascots and that it's going to put mm. at risk the popularity. Um, and so they're saying that there's been, look, let me make sure I say this right. There are so many mascots in Japan. Government officials have pushed for a culling of less popular mascots. A culling? Oh, no. The system alive. They have a Grand Prix annual contest where fans vote for their favorite mascots, which also keeps tabs on the popularity of government-sponsored characters. (laughs) So there's like a a little bit of a use-it-or-lose-it kind of threat hanging over the head of the mascots. Um, But at this so far they have not seen a waning in popularity um i'm just gonna i'm gonna show you some i would love to see some and usually it has a picture of them like you know hand drawn and then also their their person in a suit so here is marrow q a patchwork Aww. cat which is the mascot for cuba pachinko parlors um this oh, one is the crab. this crab sailor is the mascot for a city and his weakness is playing rock paper scissors scissors but his special skill is walking sideways um this is this cowboy pig is the mascot for the western side of kobe city japan so i got a little battle going on i don't know who the eastern side one is this is this is my favorite one. Oh, that one's amazing. That has so much going on. <laughs> this is Mukeron, the mascot of Mukawa Town, uh, has a calm personality that makes her not notice that a plesiosaur is biting her head, which is a melon. <laughs> <laughs> that is a beautifully constructed sentence. Oh, this is... um. 
the mascot this oh, blue wow. bunny is that a is that a mascot wrestling someone oh yes yes this one um uh, made its pro wrestling debut in one um this one is a foot <gasps> look at that that's <laughs> wait does that foot have a chainsaw yes that's nervous that foot has a chainsaw and he's concerned about using it i, I don't quite know this one is um the mascot of a driving school is described as it's safety coon, a nervous novice oh. driver chick. <laughs> he does look nervous. He does. There's another foot. <laughs> oh, it's the same one, but turned into a left foot instead of a right foot. This is an updated. Oh, one. and holding a leaf, not a chainsaw. Not a chainsaw. This is one is described mm-hmm. as a malevolent blue bunny, the mascot of a radio station. A, a grandfatherly green onion fairy from Bando City. His mustache wiggles when he's tense. Oh, I mean, there's just, I mean, they just go on. I mean, I could on. listen to you do this all on. day. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Um, that That's my pop culture thing. There you nice. go. I love that. I love it. Okay. My pop culture thing is... It's been a while since I've just talked about a television show, and I want to talk about a television show called Hunted. And this is a television show that is currently airing in Australia in its second season, and it is wild. So the premise of this show is that anyone, average, normal, everyday people, citizens, can be on it. You apply to be on it like a reality show, and it takes place in different states in Australia and so this season is in Victoria where Melbourne is and that's kind of important because for the show you're not allowed to leave the state and so these people there's nine teams of two and they are hunted not like to kill them for sport okay what's that what's that short story where they like go and hunt people um what is that called dangerous game yeah yeah most dangerous game it's not the most dangerous game it's more like a terrible surveillance police state um and the premise is that they are escaped fugitives who are on the run and they are being hunted by the government like you know the, the police and the government like you would if you had committed a crime and you were on the run and they go out of their way production to make this as real as possible and so there's like a headquarters where they have most of them are former government agents or former police officers of varying things and so you have like a headquarters where all these like tech experts former like yeah government agents are and then they have on the ground teams that actually go after these people they have drones they have helicopters They really do have like all these things. And so the people are, everyone's released from a common location and they can't leave the state. They get $500, $300 on a debit card, 200 cash. And then it's 28 days that they have to be on the run without getting caught. And at the end of the show, much like Naked and Afraid, there's like an extraction point. So you can't just like go bury yourself underground for 28 days. You have to get to a point. And it's really sketchy. I, I I cannot explain why this show was so fascinating to me. It's upsetting. It's a weird premise. Part of it is that everyone does take it very seriously. And so you have the contestants like walking around 
they know that, you know, we can't use a phone, we can't use our own phone, we can't rent, you can't use your credit card at all. And so there's a lot of them walking around, walking up to people on the street saying, hey, can I use your phone? Or hey, can you help me? And they always start with, I'm a fugitive on the run. And it's just like so polite. And it's like, of course, they're followed by a giant camera crew. If you right. went up to someone and actually said, hey, I'm a fugitive on the run, they'd probably not help you. But um, it is interesting to see like who helps and who doesn't. And I think this goes back to maybe a generational thing. I noticed that like most younger, most people under 40 don't want to help. Like if they're like, can I have your phone? And they're like, no, bye. And then most people over 50 are like, yeah, you can come spend the night in my house. Sure. You would think I'm sitting here watching it and I'm rooting for the contestants. I want them to win money. You get a hundred thousand dollars if you make it till the end. And I want to see them win. I don't want people to be caught by the police. I'm not going to cheer for the government and the police. And yet the entire structure of the show is, I think, I kept watching it and feeling a real dissonance with the show. It is structured for you to root for them to get caught. And in the first two episodes, like half the teams got caught in the first two days. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be like, is anyone even going to win at the end? And I realized it just seemed that it was really hard. And I re- and I realized, I looked into it, that there are all these arbitrary rules that if you really were a fugitive on the run, that would not exist. So you have to, every 48 hours, you have to move. You can't just hunker down somewhere. You have, the contestants have to change locations every 48 hours. They have to at least twice use their credit cards, which like, it's very unfair. And I'm like, that's not fair. This is hard. Um, also, they say the the hunters say that they use CCTV a lot. But I'm like, they are being followed by a camera crew. Like, are you looking for them on CCTV? Or are you just looking for the right. camera crew? Yeah. They can also bribe people. The show allows them to give large sums of money to people on the street to help them out. Anyway, they crack all their social, you give them access to all your social media. If you don't delete it, no one deletes it correctly, right? They always, you learn a lot about that. Um, There's a lot going on there. And I just found myself fascinated because I kept, I kept trying to figure out how I would do it. When I watch reality shows, I'm not usually like, oh, what would I do? There was something about this that I'm like, I want to know how I would win this. What would I do? And I couldn't really come up with any good ways. Yeah, I have and no skills really, for that. Like I, I have it drove I, me crazy. Yeah. I don't know why it bothered me so much, but I, I kept watching it and I drove my spouse up a wall because they kept talking about what would we do? How would I do this? And I He's just like, couldn't let's come up not with be anything. felons. And yeah. Yeah. He was like, maybe don't, because it seems not fun. And that is part of it, um, that these people are having a terrible time, right? Most of the time, they just have to, like, sleep out in the middle of nowhere. If they're lucky, they have tents and they're camping out. But it's it's hard. And I had read that there were rules that at night, production stops, no one's hunted. They can at least have the night to sleep. But I think that's wrong for season two because they were doing like helicopters with thermal body imaging to find people as they slept. And like somebody, his son was having their third birthday and he's like, I'm not going to risk it. I'm not going to see my son. We'll celebrate the birthday when it's over. But they went and interrogated his son and they're like, so you're not seeing your dad, huh? Guess he doesn't love you. It was terrible. So 
I just kept saying, how would I do it? And I couldn't think of it. Cause at first I was like, oh, I would go hunker down. And then I learned you can't do that. And I mean, obviously no phones, no computers. Don't do any of that. Don't ever use your credit card, except they make you. Um, I think I would rely on public libraries a lot is all I could come up with. Do you have any, you said, no, no you don't know I, what this you would is, do. This would be so far outside of my skill set. Like, yeah. The other thing that makes it really unfair is that when they, the way they learn at the end of the 28 days where their extraction point is, is they get a phone call. And so the hunters don't know where the extraction point is, but when that phone call happens, they're allowed to trace it. So at that moment, they know exactly where they are. And so they could try to intercept you anywhere leading yes. up to it. And the location, the extraction location is the same for everyone. So if one team drops the ball and the police find out, it's it's game over for everyone. And so in the season I was watching, the extraction point was a giant sports stadium. And they did find out from someone where it was. And they just set up posts all around the stadium. And this might be like the, because we've been talking about kind of the, I don't even know, I don't even think stereotype is the right word, just the impression of American, you know, like gun culture and violence culture. But like, I assume these are these stadiums where like the public can see this happening because I would be freaked out if I saw like people staked out around a space that I was going yes. into or around. Like, I think that it disturbs me for that reason. Just the, the potential for terror that is being yeah. sent out. Cause yeah, you see here helicopters, they use drones. There's people around the stadium. Yeah. I don't know if they, there's cameras everywhere, but that too, right? That could be because something happened. I don't know how much they tell people in the area, hey, filming's going to happen here. But yeah, it's just, I think this is why I'm so obsessed with it because the implications of it are far reaching about it interacting with the real world in a way. And all of this to say, watching the show, like I said, was a very odd experience because I'm cheering for the fugitives. It's not set up for that at all. They pretty much all get caught. The narrative arc of each episode like ends with them getting caught. Like that's it. Like, yay. And now they're caught. And the height of it is them getting caught and it's happy and you're supposed to be happy and satisfying. And it's not, it feels terrible. And you're really sad at the And It was not a fun watch, but, and all these people are just devastated and broken by this fake police state people and their stupid war room high-fiving each other. And I think it's so, it's clearly not created to cheer for those on the run, but along with the rules that are so clearly in the favor of the hunters, it just, I finally realized, told me a lot, which is you cannot have winners or at least many who win this because then it looks kind of maybe easy, right? Then people think, oh, anyone can just run from the police. Yeah. And I don't think anyone would watch it and think that was true, but it just says something like out of human control wider about like the nation and the police state and the government, which is you just can't have them lose too badly on TV because they're for this season, spoilers, there was like two people won and that was it. And at the end, when they got to the helicopter for the extraction, they were broken. They just started losing it. They cried and cried and cried. They fell down. They could not talk. They were traumatized. Like they were really traumatized. So it makes it, even if you do win, you don't want to be in that position. You don't want to be, you don't want to have gone through all that. So it's really like, 
this warning instead of like, don't do bad things. Don't go on the run. Um, straight. <laughs> don't evade the state. Because if 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 it looked too fun to evade the state or too easy, there might be some we might all do it. breakdown. Anyway, the only thing that was say, keeping me from committing felonies was the fear that I might not be yes. able to escape. <laughs> but now, now I can see how easy it can be done. Um, this is all to say I am halfway through my application for season three of Hunted Australia, and my spouse is not happy. I keep saying, you are please applying? don't do this. What? I'm applying. I don't know if I'll go through with it. I was going to apply, and then the questions got weirder. The reason I just stopped, where the questions got more upsetting, like, do you, like, do you think there's too much surveillance in Australia? What is your relationship with police? And I was like, oh, I don't want to answer these questions. Don't do, don't I, do this. No. <laughs> my spouse's plea is the same. Don't do this. I'm don't, like, you'll be on my this. team, right? You'll do no. it. He, and he was like, I will, but I don't want to. Please don't. Um, and yeah, the only other thing I have to say about it is that it was originally a British show. And it's been on in England since 2015. And um, I think what you said about like, if people see policemen like outside a stadium, what will happen and there was an American version, a hunted U.S., but it got canceled fast. And part, it just doesn't fly the same in America. There's too many vigilantes who, if they're like, you're a fugitive on the run, oh, I'll take care of you. Yeah. Yeah, it no, no. As you were way. describing it, I was like, oh my, God, I can't even imagine that happening here. It would be a nightmare. It sounds like, yes, it was. And so I think I just talked myself out of applying for it, actually. So yeah. this was, I don't know if that was an interesting pop culture, but that was helpful for me. Well, and um, you're you're saying like, oh, that maybe they're worried that it'll train people to be better fugitives. But what you're saying, I'm worried it's going to train people hunting to be better hunters. Oh, cruel. no. Like, yeah, no, that. Well, and I also I am I assume that they can't commit crimes to get away that was because you're the, on the, tv it, yes. so like in the puzzler in the puzzler of this of how would i do this i got more and more erratic and i'm like what if i committed an actual crime and went to prison they couldn't catch me and i was like um, yeah no you're not allowed that please, is one of please the don't rules apply. you can't you can't commit actual well crime. but i mean also, like, if you were truly a fugitive and you needed a car, the answer would probably be steal a car. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying so that's a good answer, weird, but yeah. Because right? the police are allowed to do everything they kind of do anyway. And they tackle people. They make con. They're like physically violent. But then, yeah, you have to be a good citizen and not break the law. You have to be a good trying- citizen fugitive. <laughs> Yeah, it's like playing Grand Theft Auto without ever stealing or breaking anything. That's a really weird situation. It's such a weird show. And I just caught it um, when I was still, before I moved into my house and we were like in a hotel room, I just caught it on TV one night. I was like, what is this? This is crazy. So that's it. Hunted, hunted Australia, hunted UK, hunted US. I'm not going to apply. Don't worry, everyone. Okay. Yes, please I'm don't I'm not apply. doing it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yes. If nothing else has ever come out of this podcast, that decision feels <laughs> like it was worth all of it. Okay. <laughs> it's for the best. All right. R- research things.
research thing. Research things. All right. This is a journey. I'm. Uh, I started with some research, and then I was like, "Oh, that's not enough research." In. Yeah. Yes. Please do. I, well, I had some research. And I was like, that's not enough research. So then I like followed a rabbit hole on that research and then I didn't like where it was going. So I backed back out and followed a different one. <laughs> so I'm just going to take you on the whole ride. I'm just going to. I'm so excited. I'm just going to take you there with me. So it started when I saw this article titled Three Moments That Might Convince You Edgar Allan Poe Was a Time Traveler. And I don't know why I clicked on that because it sounds like one of those absolutely ridiculous. Why would you buy it? Yeah, Articles that have titles like that never actually give you the information that matched that title, right? Like, so I was, I, I know better than to expect anything interesting. Like number number one, he knew what time was. Number two, he He had been traveled. Yeah, yeah. But it was not. It was. It's pretty interesting. It is by Jake Offenhearts. Um, I will also put it in the show notes. And there are three specific incidents. I am going to do them out of order because the first one that's mentioned is um, the one that I took me into a further rabbit hole. So I'm going to start at the bottom. Um, so there is a story called, well, it's actually a prose poem called Eureka that was critically panned at the time that it was written because it, it's, it said it sounded like the work of a madman and it was really complex um and so it was it didn't get a lot of attention in poe's own time poe didn't get a lot of attention in his own time he died you know penniless um but it describes an expanding universe that began in quote one instantaneous splash derived from a single quote primordial particle which is pretty much the Big Bang Theory, except for that Poe wrote it 80 years before modern science had done anything with the Big Bang Theory. So, wow. yeah, yeah. Um, it's not like he was a scientist. He was right. Poe goes on to put forth the first legitimate solution to Olber's paradox, the question of why, given the vast number of stars in the universe, the night sky is dark, by explaining that light from the expanding universe had not yet reached our solar system. Um, yeah. So when Edward Robert Harrison published Darkness at Night in 1987, 1987, he credited Eureka as having anticipated his findings. Wow. 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 And like people have said, like no, no, no astronomer in Poe's day could have imagined what Poe was imagining. And like, you know, Poe wasn't an astronomer. So. So yeah, so that's that's one piece of evidence that he had time traveled oh. and was bringing his knowledge yeah. with him. Um, another is a short story called The Businessman, which was published in 1840 about an unnamed narrator who suffers a traumatic head injury as a young boy, leading to a life of obsessive regularity and violent sociopathic outburst. Uh, this represents a gra- uh, the grasp of... Um, traumatic brain injury yeah. frontal lobe syndrome um and they say that poe outlined dozens of symptoms and he said there's everything in that story we've hardly learned anything more <laughs> that, that he basically covered all of it oh. years before it had actually been understood and researched in the medical community so that's the that's yeah. the second one and the one that i ended up taking a different path on is 
The narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, this was published in 1838. It's his only completed novel. It's about mutiny on a whaling ship lost at sea. The men have to cannibalize each other. They draw straws to elect somebody to eat. A boy named Richard Parker draws the shortest straw and is subsequently eaten. But um, in 1884, so the story was published in 1838. In 1884, 46 years later, four men were adrift on a sinking yacht. Um, and they did resort to cannibalism. They did elect to eat their 17-year-old cabin boy, whose name was Richard Parker. Isn't that wild? Now, do you think he is a time traveler or a wizard calling these things into being? If you were a time traveler and a writer... Those don't seem like the things you would choose from the future to write about. I mean, I guess who am I to judge? What would you choose from the future I don't know. to write about? Maybe you would want to keep your cover low. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's some rules too. about like time travel and not destroying the world that you can't write about the big things. So you have to pick, although the Big Bang is a pretty big See, also, what? Yeah, what? Yeah, but maybe that was like needed. Maybe some other time traveler was like, they need to understand the Big Bang, and that's the only way they'll do it. But in this poem that everybody pans. Yeah. Because what's the story where there's like a cyborg or an automaton? Because that is also lauded. Not so. Those three examples are so on the nose. This isn't as on the nose, but it is lauded as being like very very good about like automatons and cyborgs and trauma, PTSD. Some people Mm -hmm. look at him with like, man. Wait, yeah, I'm a little blown away. But that's not even really my research thing. That's just how I got into my research thing. Because there's a line in this first example that says that they they didn't really see this parallel between Poe's story and this real life event, even though they were so similar, these two shipwrecks, until a letter was selected for publication in the Sunday Times after journalist Arthur Costler put out a call for tales of striking coincidence. And so I initially started researching Arthur Costler because I wanted to know more about this person, this journalist who was researching coincidence. And I wanted to find out more about like, how did, you know, how does that work to be a coincidence researcher? Um, But he's pretty disturbing. So he was was a British journalist um, who has some really weird sex rapey he is quoted as having said that like sex isn't fun unless there's some initial element of rape to it like it was it it was very it grossed me out a lot and I didn't really want to keep reading that and then I found that he was like his death he was involved in a double suicide with his wife and he was really ill but she wasn't but they were both members of this like movement that people should be able to end their lives if they wanted i don't it, it, i was like yeah, this is this is sounding like you, a really you backed out this that is a really sad hole. research thing i was like no never mind this is not the rabbit hole i want to be in um not that yeah. it's not interesting but it's definitely not the vibe that especially since my other things this week were pretty happy and i was yeah. like i don't want to i don't want to just drag us down right so um i instead just started looking at research on coincidences and i found that there are coincidence collectors (laughs) so um paul 
Brammermerer is an Austrian biologist whose big work was published in 1924. He was a coincidence collector. Every article I found talking about coincidence in any serious way and like what a coincidence is mean mentions him. Um, and he likes to just keep track of these coincidences. Lots of them are incredibly boring, like just like really mundane things. But he's like, I, I want to track and understand these. And his theory was all about ended up getting connected to like Darwinism. I didn't again i decided that was not the the path i was taking on this was how the, the he was using them i just wanted to think about coincidence and why you collect them and then there's a, a guy who's still alive named sir david john spiegelhalter who is a british statistician who is a current coincidence collector we'll get to his coincidence collecting mechanisms at the end here um and so i learned about these men and their coincidence collecting by reading an article from the atlantic by julie beck and reading an article from The Guardian by Paul Brox. So the information I'm going to give you is kind of a mix of those two. Um, and I will send the links for both of those. So as we're talking about coincidence, I thought it was really interesting that both of the authors started with their own stories of coincidences. Because mm. that's, you know, like to, to set you, to set the stage, right? And so Julie Beck tells a story of having been a middle schooler and being in line at an amusement park and finding a wad of cash with her friends and they pick it up off the ground and they count it out and it's, I, she couldn't remember the exact number now, but for the sake, she said, let's say it's $134 just to make it, you know, an easy story to tell. And they were trying to figure out like, can we keep it? Should we turn it into somebody? And a bunch of teenagers saw them and snatched it from them and were like, oh, oh, oh. and they counted it out and they're like, this is ours now. And she was like, you know, we didn't know what to do, so they just took it. And then a year later, she was at some kind of camp and somebody she had never met before that she wasn't even in talking to was telling a story about having dropped a lot of cash at an amusement park. And she was like, wait, what? What amusement park? Was it in May? Was it, How much was it? And it was the exact amount. And she's like, that is so weird. I found your cash, but yeah. then it got taken from me. And so just that thought of like, you know, how weird is it that you had both experienced that and then you were both in the room together and that you overheard and all the things that had to line up for that finding of the moment to to come into view. And so um, she said something more than rarity compels us to group them together. They have a similar texture, a feeling that the fabric of life has rippled. The question is where this feeling comes from, why we notice certain ways the threads of our lives collide and ignore others. And so what I really found interesting was that, that in both of these articles, a lot of the discussion of coincidence isn't so much about the incidents itself, but about the meaning that we ascribe to it and the feeling that we mm. get from it. And that kind of like, I can't quite explain why it matters so much to me, but it matters a lot to me, like that element of it. And so um, similarly in the other article, that author's story was that he had a dream that featured his mom's friend who he hadn't thought about in decades coming to him and saying that she had died. And he he told his partner about it. His partner's like, yeah, cool. You had a dream, right? And, you know, moved on about their day. And then, like, two weeks later, they got a letter that was from her daughter saying, like, hey, we couldn't get a hold of your mom, but we wanted to let you know she died two weeks ago. Here's so, like, 
he had had the dream around the same time that she died. And he's like, I had not thought about her in decades. Yeah. Like, what? This is just so strange, right? And he, I really liked this quote from him. He said, there is a part of me that despite myself wants to entertain the possibility that the world really does have supernatural dimensions. I'd go so far as to say that magical thinking forms the basis of selfhood. Our experience of ourselves and other people is essentially an act of imagination that can't be sustained through wholly rational modes of thought. And this is something, this gets close to something that um, that my husband and I talk about a lot, is that I, I feel like there's something that humans need a religious, like, structure whether that is um you know whether that has any theism to it or not right they need they need something that is meaning giving that they can latch onto to be able to say like this is how i get up in the day and make sense of what i have to do and i mean that could be i mean you could have a, a religious devotion to capitalism right you could have a religious devotion to i don't know the westminster dog show whatever it is right like <laughs> Something that just says, this is what gives my life meaning and structure, and this is how I am going to continue forward. And so- structure, right? Most of all, which can then give meaning. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So when I read that line about like, maybe coincidence is us sort of tapping into that like primal need to just like, how do I make sense of the world around me? Definitions that we have of coincidence, because even just defining it is hard. It's not just a rare thing, right? Like- rare things happen every day, right? Like something yeah. rare is happening all the time. That's the law of truly large numbers is what it's called. Great name. I, I actually really like it. Like the that. large enough sample, any outrageous thing is likely to happen. So there is no rare thing if you have a large enough sample because like the the rarity goes away. And so um, in 1989, this pair of mathematicians defined coincidence as, quote, a surprising concurrence of events perceived as meaningfully related with no apparent causal connection. And so just think about how much subjectivity is in that, like surprising, who gets to determine what's surprising or not, meaningful, who gets to determine what's meaningful or not. Like that's not an objective measure. You can't objectively decide this is a coincidence by that definition. Um Camerera, which is the guy who did the, um, was the collector from that did the publishing right. in the twenties, he defined it as a law, a lawful recurrence of the same or similar things or events in time and space, which that's not even like very useful. And also, lawful. as you will find here, it's also not, it doesn't, it's not all encompassing of the things that we currently kind of consider coincidence. So it's really even hard to define because. If you just say like, I mean, it's, it's kind of a feeling, right? You're like, oh, yeah. I got this feeling and that's what makes it coincidence. And so it's more about what you can convince somebody else to agree. Oh yeah, that's weird enough to be a coincidence, right? One of the worst feelings is thinking something's a really big, cool coincidence and telling someone else and they're like, no, that's just, I hate that. It made me think about how humor is created collectively, right? Like, it's not a joke if nobody laughs, like, yeah. definitionally, right? And so something right. that- like the biggest jerk move in the world is going, it's a joke. And it's just like, no, if you have to say that, you're mean. Well, yeah. and, like, something could have been a joke in one context, and now you told it, and this audience is like, mm-mm, it's not a joke here. 
Um, and it's not a joke anymore. And like, you don't get to define that. And I think that coincidence is the same way. Coincidence is something that really kind of puts forward our dependence on audience mm. reaction to what we create in the world in a way that a lot of our other communication doesn't lay bare, even though it's still there. And so I think it kind of just has this sort of like charged uh, element to it because there's something really vulnerable about knowing like my experience, if it's not validated and seen by the audience that I'm telling it to can collapse. And I think that's really, yeah. yeah. I wanted to argue against that and be like, no, you can have something in coincidence and it's a coincidence to you and it's cool. But I'm like, well, if that's the case, then why did I just say one of the worst feelings is when people don't agree that your coincidence is a coincidence. So yeah. And I think that if you're not sharing it, is it, I mean, like if you're not explaining and saying, oh, look at this weird coincidence that happened, like you're not noticing it and then it's not really a coincidence, right? Because yeah, rare things happen all the time. So yeah. And it doesn't have to be a rare thing, right? That the Well, I understand that like being in the room with someone who's talking about the lost money, that's the rarity, but like losing money and finding money isn't. So it is just a, con- it's, that's an interesting inflation too. And have you had any cool coincidences? Like I was then? trying, I know that I have, and I was trying to think of some to be able to share for this part. And I, I can't think of any right now. And I am absolutely 100% certain that I've had some that like really like sent shivers up my spine and were like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. And I can't, how about you? There's also overlap, I think, between coincidences and signs. Signs can be more personal, but like, cause I, 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 <laughs> This happened this morning, this coincidence that someone was like, no, it's not an interesting coincidence. So I'm going to, can I share my coincidence? Yeah, absolutely. You can can either tell me if it's not or it is. Um, So, and then I said, oh, it's a sign. Because I often, if it's a coincidence, I'll go, it's a sign. Um, So I was sitting in the park this morning and I'm currently in Sydney, Australia for a wedding. So I'm visiting Sydney where I used to live. I'm feeling very at home here. I'm missing it. And so I, my spouse and I went to the park to have a coffee and eat a pastry and look at all the cute dogs in the park we used to live near. And he had to go to the bathroom. So we went to the public restroom. And while he was gone, I opened up my Kindle and started to read a book I'm working through. And in this book, which sounds bad, but they do it really well, Allen Ginsberg as a character um, is talked about. And there were two women right in front of me with their dogs. Oh my God, I feel silly now. This is, it's like telling dreams or something or telling a joke. You're a little exposed. So I was reading my book and the two women in front of me were talking and I was also just listening to them talk while I read. And one, they were talking about trips they had gone on. Someone was going to Israel and the other woman said, well, do you like jewelry? And the other person's like, ah, ah, what, I like jewelry if it's the right jewelry. She said, well, you have to go and see this you have to if you're there you have to go buy jewelry from this person and I'm reading my book as I'm kind of listening along and then they said oh what's her name and they said Leah Ginsburg and at the exact moment they said Ginsburg I read the word Ginsburg like exact moment and I stopped and went huh I went oh I had to have heard that wrong like I read the word Ginsburg so I filled in the last name with Ginsburg that has to be wrong so I went back to reading and they carried on their conversation the person said in a second what was that name again I want to write it down and the person said Leah Ginsburg. And for the second time on the page I was on, Ginsburg appeared. And it happened the same time where she said it as I read it at the exact same time. 
I thought that was I a I cool can yeah yes I I see your coincidence. Thank you. It is seen. Thank you. My Ginsbergian coincidence. I have had that happen where like I've been telling a story and there's like a pretty rare word that will line up like exactly with like the song that is and I'm like that's not even a word that's normally in a song. This is so strange. Like yeah. But again, they're kind of, it's kind of like a dream. Like when you tell somebody that they're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cause to have that, it is very embodied to have that happen. It's yeah. It's hard to relay, but you have to relay it that. Yeah. So it's hard to relay, but you have to for the experience to be complete, which makes coincidences really hard. So in, in the research um, that I looked at, they were talking about how when people ask, like, what are the odds of this happening? They're not really asking, like, what are the odds of it happening to someone? They're asking, what are the odds of it happening to me right here, right now, right? Like, and so it is a very embodied, like, oh, this is a strange thing that's happening to me. And I think that it's also just a reminder that, like, we, we can only see the world from where we are, that we only have yeah. the vantage point of our vantage point and a reminder that there's all this stuff going on out there that isn't ours and when it kind of overlaps like that um and so spiegel halter who's the other coincidence collector the the modern day one said that the amazing thing is not that these things occur it's that we notice them so like the found money Aww. story those those people could have like never you could have not overheard them right and they still would have right, been saying ginsburg at the moment you were reading ginsburg but you never would have known and so the whole like oh that's cool moment would have just vanished. and so how many times a day does that happen how many uh. times that like a coincidence that you could have tapped into that you just didn't like are we always Ooh. existing at that level um and i also Ooh, thought i got chills that made me <laughs> ooh. And I'm I, always looking for signs. So this is right up my alley. Well, interestingly, personality is linked to who notices coincidences. Those who are religious, oh. spiritual, or self-referential are more likely to notice coincidences. And it is also linked to mood. Those who are sad, angry, or anxious are more likely to notice coincidences. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spiegelhalter himself, who is this huge researcher into coincidence and collects coincidences, says that they very rarely happen to him because um, he's like, I'm not going to just sit and talk with a stranger on the train and be like, oh, this is about like, I, I want to know more about their life so I can find these connections. He said, because I'm English. <laughs> so <laughs> I That does that was make fun. me think, though, I heard once that like the less in control of their own life people feel, the more likely they are to be really into astrology. And that makes me think that like believing in astrology and glomming onto that is just like coincidence, right? In a way to be like, that applies to me. Oh, wow. What are the odds? There's some meaning. There's some, there's some order. To me. Yeah. And I just like that both those things are kind of linked to maybe anxiety, trying to put more order, feeling sad. Yeah. That makes I mean, sense. You I mean, just, but isn't that like you said, religion? Too, all of our, all of our myths are about yeah. all of our myths. Like whether you believe in them literally, you believe in them figuratively, or you don't believe in them at all. Their origin stories are about us trying to impose some order on a world that feels orderless, right? Like that's, yeah. that's where they come from. Um, I They did have this like way of labeling coincidences that I thought was pretty interesting. So it's environment to environment. So those are like the objectively observable, like the found money one, right? Um, environment to mind. So if you're like thinking of a friend and then they call you. So it's very premonition-y, which is hard to prove because how, if you say, oh, I was just thinking of you and then I called, like... 
can I prove you were just thinking of me? And honestly, like, can you even prove to yourself you were just thinking of me? Can you absolutely prove you were thinking it first and then I called? Or did your mind, did your memory get jumbled? And like, yeah. yeah. Um, and then mind to mind, like these are some real bizarre ones. Like there was an example of a man who was at his sink and started choking, but there was nothing in his throat. And he found out the next day that his dad died by choking at the moment that that was happening to him and so like Man. how are you i mean you know like no one was how around to him and like it yeah so there was no no physical ob object in the world for it but that that moment felt like that um and i also like that this article went out of its way to say that quote it's not fair to say that the people who make meaning from coincidences are irrational in fact a lot of scientists say that like are our fascination with coincidence is probably a byproduct of our critical thinking skills because we are primed to find patterns and make meaning out of them. And that's how we have done a lot of our scientific discoveries. That's how we've done a lot of our just work as human beings and collective, you know, existence. So yeah. that the, wanting to find meaning in coincidences is probably a very human thing that is built into us. Um, let me see if there's any other of these. Oh, so I now have to show you Spiegelhalter's website, Understanding Uncertainty, where you can submit your coincidences and people can rank them. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, I, I feel bad for the ranking, but I am so excited to just <laughs> obsess over that website. That sounds amazing. Right, let me pull it up. Okay, so can you see it? Yes. So from Cambridge University, Professor David Spiegelhalter wants to know about your coincidences. So people submit them and then you get to rate them. <laughs> There's featured content. Can we can we read them from like I wonder I, I'm trying to see if you can I found this pretty Order close to when we started. Highest, yeah, like, can I can I only see lowest. So far there's just all three stars. There are only three star coincidences. Maybe that's a coincidence. Is that a coincidence that they're all three stars? Oh, here's a four, star, a four one. star. And it's really short. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's read one of them. So many parallels. So I've got this childhood friend who has the same birth date as me, just that she is a year older. Her sister and my brother also share the same birthday, and our dads both have the same first name. In addition, we both had a doll named Lena when we were younger, independently from each other, and we both belong to the LGBTQIA plus community. Can someone explain this? See, I would give that two stars. That's yeah. not a four-star coincidence to me. No, that's not that. That's not that many. I mean... Reading through the collection of coincidences here, it's clear that most are frivolous and trite, but it's only when a coincidence leads to something sinister and evil do they gain gravitas, and when these coincidences happen, they result in terrible consequences. For example, Hitler was a very fortunate individual who was a habitual risk taker and escaped death on numerous occasions in World War I as a trench runner message carrier, so much so that he was awarded a number of medals, including the Iron Cross First Class, that was very unusual for an enlisted man even after the war and his rise in politics. He was very fortunate indeed such as during the beer hall hutch i don't know if that's the right word in push. munich what is it push push in munich november 1923 when he was shot at by a german police and a comrade next to him was shot dead that's not coincidence that's not four stars either and i know that that's very internet isn't that just the internet yeah. that you're scrolling and you randomly choose one and it's about hitler come on right 
Ooh. <laughs> All right. In 1997, I moved to Durham, around 200 miles away from Norfolk. In 1998, I remember see- walking, seeing Darren's old red Cavalier car in a side street as I walked by. We used to travel together in this car in Norfolk, perhaps about five years earlier. In 2018, I started to see a customer in Durham through work who revealed to me that her son worked with Darren in their place of employment. It was quite uncanny. These are not I very say- good. These are bad. And I think that one could have been better if they were a better storyteller. You need to tell me who Darren is. Yeah. Okay. What's the movie duration coincidence? That seems. I was watching a movie and my dad wanted to see the beginning because he didn't see the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) None of these people are good storytellers. (laughs) I'm I'm not making fun of people's writing. I'm a writing teacher, I believe, but. (laughs) My dad wanted to see the beginning because he didn't see the beginning. Because he didn't see the beginning. (laughs) That did tickle me too. I allowed him to pause it and go to the beginning. And when he paused it, it was at 12 minutes and six seconds, 12.06. And at the time was (laughs) 12.06. No. And then they... I I do think that is a coincidence, but not a particularly interesting one. No, I think my coincidence should get seven stars. And yeah, no, your coincidence stuff. is way more coincidency than these. Those stories, just that it was the same name. It's wild that they ate. The person they ate was the same name. It's wild. Well, <sighs> that is my research thing. Coincidence. I loved it. I loved it. And what I think it's a coincidence that you talked about coincidence on the The day you had a coincidence. coincidence. That I think would be a five star coincidence, judging by its competitors. Just it happening twice. Okay. So, my research thing I want to say we have a grab bag this week. (gasps) I wanted to um, surprise you with it. And I will give the grab bag after I do mine for reasons. But this is. Brought to you, not by Anonymous, not by Matt Damon, but by my spouse. And I, before I play it, I will say, I haven't listened to it yet. He begged me to listen to it and edit it. And I said, that's not the rules, Michelle. It's I have the to rules. get things at the same time. Yeah. So I probably will edit it heavily. But he also wanted you to know that he hates himself. And he says he sounds like the worst person at the end of an academic conference who's like not asking a question, but just saying like, look what I know. But isn't that the whole premise of this? Like, hey, look what I know. Isn't that just kind of like, I know. (laughs) But and I will also add on top of that, I asked him to do it. Um, It was solicited. It was a solicited grab bag. Which are the only kind we get anymore. I know. I just have to steal them. They're either stolen from conversations I have or directly solicited. But again, the song is great. and We'll get to hear it again. So my research is also just stolen from your research last week because I was so into your research last week. And two things happened. One, I told my spouse about it and was very surprised when his eyes got big and said, oh, yeah, I know the Gilbreths. So to recap to everyone, last week, last fortnight, last episode, Michelle talked about the Gilbreths, who were a married couple who did a lot for efficiency and time management. And you should go listen to it if you haven't. And yeah, I just got big. And he was not happy with the Gilbreths. Now, the way you conveyed the Gilbreths to me was like really cool and really nice. And I'm very into the Gilbreths. 
And so I was very intrigued about why he. Well, to be fair, I did not know okay. much. I was I was going off of a pretty. Oh, this is not yeah superficial this is not understanding. I am I am not pitting myself against whatever we're about to learn about them. Yes. No. 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 <laughs> I know that, and I think he wants everyone to know he's not pitting himself against you. This is not what's happening. I think it's just cool that we're getting a very like well-rounded research over yeah. two episodes. He wants to take. So, and I mean, you do do your due diligence, like that you find out if people are terrible rapists. So it's not, that's not why the Gilbreths upset him. Um, nothing like that they personally really did. And um, so we have a grab bag on that. And a lot of my research that is going to be taken over by my spouse who will explain it. But I'm going to go through mine first and then we'll disparage the Gilbreths at the end. Um because mine's pretty short. I was going to go way, way, way down rabbit holes. And then I kind of just, I got the answer I wanted and I stopped. And so sometimes research Isn't that works a nice that feeling? Way. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty straightforward. I, I, I went down a rabbit hole and I found the rabbit and cool. The end. So we talked about the time ocean experiments that um, especially Lillian Galbraith um, did to be more efficient in the kitchen, right? You said yes. that the efficiency triangle she discovered this, not just out of the blue, right? But by lots of research of watching people work. They just are so cool. So these are images. So there they are. These are the time motion studies of Frank and Lillian Gilbreth from the early 20th century. And right off the bat, just visually, they're amazing. They're, they're very they, cool images. They're very like artsy. Like, I, yeah. Yeah. I am going to stop and say, yes, I understand that this is a audio podcast and I'm about to talk about images forever or just look up Gilbreth's time motion studies because that's what I want to talk about. I saw those images and they were so interesting and it made me think of other images. I'm really basically the Gilbreths, not only all the legacies you talked about last episode, but they play a super important role in the history of photography and film. Um, and I was blown away by these images and not only do they look cool, they made me wonder about two things about timelines of, and who can take credit for what the first being photos by Edward Moybridge, which for those of you who don't know, you probably do know these images. Edward Moybridge took pictures of things in motion, people, and what he's probably most well known for is horses. Oh yeah. Um, people yeah. riding horses, which in the movie, nope. They talk about a lot, and the main characters of that are, or at least claim to be, descendants of the jockey in those images. So um, the Edward Moybridge did this, so you could find things out, these stop-motion kind of images. You learn things like all the horses' feet left the ground, stuff like that, just to see how things moved. And since photography was fairly new at the time, they um, were just, you could... You could do things with photography that you couldn't otherwise do, and you could see things that you couldn't otherwise see, and it was really cool. Now, to describe the Gilbreth's images, because they wanted to see how people moved and to make things more efficient, one of the things they did was they would put lights on people's fingers or other body parts, depending on what work they were looking at, and then they would film them. So the Gilbreths used a 35 millimeter camera made before 1910, and that required hand cranking. And then they invented something called a micro chronometer, 
which is a clock capable of recording time to one two thousandth of a second. And they put that clock in the frame, in the field of the picture, so that they could break the movements down into extremely small units, as you discussed. And they would so, but in doing that, they would attach small lights. And so not only could they get individual things, but because it was so delayed in exposure, you get these images, which are people just surrounded by a flurry of like lightning bolt. It looks like they're all being electrocuted or something, or their magic and lightning's coming out of their fingers. And of course, what that did would show the basic shapes of their movement. So, you know, you could see the triangle, you could see where they're going, you could see where they went most and what was inefficient. Um, and so these that's what these images look like, and that's how they're created. But the second thing, so I learned that Edward, Edward Moybridge did come quite a ways before the Gilbreths, and there isn't much overlap between the two of them. But the second thing that's immediately made me think of as a as a nurse historian, I'm gonna put I'm gonna show you Michelle this image. And again, I'll put this image in the show notes, or everyone can just um look at it. There's a very famous oh. Life magazine image of Pablo Picasso. And in it, it's from 949. Pablo Picasso is at home studio in France. And there is this amazing, he draws a centaur. He's like Picasso drawing a centaur and he's drawing it with light in the air. And I've seen this image so many times and I never stopped to think about how it was made because it's actually amazing. There's just, it's like when you hold a um, a sparkler or something and wave it around to make an image. And we can do that today with cameras. And I didn't know they could then. It was a lot harder. But I always, for some reason, thought it was a rope or something, but it's Picasso painting with light. And so when I saw the Gilbreths, the images of the Gilbreths and what they made, their time motion studies, they look so similar. And so what I wanted my research to be was is there any connection between the Gilbreths and what they did and that image from 1949? So what I learned was that most people do credit the Gilbreths, not most people, pretty much everyone, credits the Gilbreths as the innovators and creators of light painting photography, which is what Picasso was doing in that. So light painting photography, which is a genre, is because of the Gilbreths. And it's inadvertently that what they were doing to study time and efficiency looked cool. And photographers said, hey, this looks cool. Let's try it. They weren't doing it for artistic purposes, but there's overlap, and um, which happens with Moybridge too. He wasn't doing it mainly for artistic purposes, but then you go to museums to see those images. Um but these images are technically much, much better than what Moybridge was doing. Um, and his work was earlier towards the end of the 1800s. So how do we get the Picasso photo? There's this guy named Harold Eugene Edgerton, who was a professor, also known as Doc Edgerton, who was a professor of electrical engineering at MIT. And he is largely credited with transforming the stroboscope, which is also a type of photography where you use a strobe light. And some people credit him with kind of inventing or at least popularizing for use the strobe lights. And so it was a very obscure laboratory instrument and he turned it into a common device, the strobe and the stroboscope for taking photos. 
Um, he also, interestingly, Doc Edgerton was developed sonar and that and sonar's use within deep sea photography. So Jacques Cousteau and everyone who went to hunt the Loch Ness monster used um, Doc Edgerton's technology. And so how he created images, he used a camera he called the Rapatronic, and that operated on the principles developed by the Gilbreths. So that's the connection. He does credit the Gilbreths. He says, this is the principles they use for their photography. That's how I can get where I get. So it's a direct relation from the Gilbreths to Edgerton. And he can take super, super high quality images of things going very fast. So if you've ever seen, and I won't, I'll show it to you, but, um, the very famous photo of a mushroom cloud of a nuclear bomb mm -hmm. going yeah. off. That's him. He was able to get that using the Rapatronic. And interestingly enough, he co-founded a company called EG&G because he was an electrical engineer. And that company, EG&G, manufactured the... Um, the detonation trigger for the hydrogen bomb. So he was able to capture it in photographs, but also it's largely the reason like we have hydrogen bombs. Um, and also just EG&G did a, supervised a lot of America's nuclear testing. So it isn't just artistic that he wanted to get that photo. That was for purposes for his corporation he founded, which was very much working with the US government to do nuclear testing. Um, but it wasn't, so he was doing this for these things, these purposes, and it wasn't really him that thought of it for artistic purposes. He was partners with someone named Gyan Mill, who was an Albanian photographer, best known for his work in Life magazine. And they partnered together to work on photography because basically Edgerton knew a lot about electrical engineering, but in terms of capturing things on photograph, he worked with Mill to develop that. And... Basically, it's Gian Mill, Edgerton's partner, who took the photo of Picasso. So Edgerton says all the technology they have comes from the Gilreths, and his partner, Gian Mill, used all of that that they worked on to photograph Picasso. And it was just very satisfying. There's my habit. Yeah. And I learned that um, basically Gian Mill met Picasso in the south of France in 1949, and showed him some of some photographs he had taken of ice skaters with teeny lights on their skates, like the Gilbreths would have affixed lights. And Picasso was really fascinated by the results. He liked them. And he told Mill that you have 15 minutes and we'll try one experiment, but that's all the time of mine you're getting. But he was so taken with it and loved the results so much that he ended up posing um, over five sessions and there were over 30 of these like light painting photographs oh. that Picasso did. He got really into it and he kind of considers it some of his work, these light painting things. He said, these are some of my paintings and I paint yeah. in light. And so those were all shown then in Life magazine. And Mill took the photographs in a darkened room using two cameras, one for the side view, one for the front. And he just, he left the shutters open while Picasso drew with a light affixed to his hands. So that is, that's just directly from the Gilbreths A to Z. And I just thought it was very cool. That is so cool. So 
I know that these are not as directly related, but I, I just want to add, you know, because we don't have enough things in this this sprawling episode since I went through like 90 different paths on my research thing. But as you were talking, it made me think of two things. Um, the websites show you the path of like where people's mouse cursor goes to show you like where yeah. you should put like the, the ads you want or whatever wherever you want them to like be most likely to click or most likely to not click um and so that little map like made me think of it in in that setting and it also a little less intellectually made me think of this oh <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so do you want to uh, describe what we're, what we're I am, seeing i am showing Catherine a uh panel one panel comic from the family circus and it's when billy the mom is leaning out the door saying billy i've been worried about you where have you been and billy said just walking home from the bus stop and if you trace backwards billy's steps all through his neighborhood and all the places that this rascally little boy stopped and grabbed ice cream and watched a neighbor fix the car and went down the slide and swung on the swings and ran through someone's garage and but I do think it's interesting because this is a commentary about time and the perception of time. And, you know, the mom's perception of time is different than Billy's and Billy's efficiency is different than hers. And um, so, yeah, yeah, it just made me that's think that's just of- his that's his normal walk. Yeah. But for her, um, it's an it's a Gilbreth nightmare. <laughs> I have not thought. I mean, that's a pre-connection, right? With like time and sensing time and motion. I have not thought about the family circus for a hundred million years. <laughs> and then what was it? Was it like Nietzsche family circus where they just put like Nietzsche quotes on yes, the family circus yes. cartoons? <laughs> that was good. Okay. Now it is time for a grab bag. Grab which bag. I've also not heard. And again, like I said, it comes with apologies from my spouse. I'm, I, I heard him recording it. And when it, he was done, he went, oh, I hate myself. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's great. Sure it's I'm sure it's great. Wonderful. Hello, agreement. Hello. Michelle and Catherine. Um, so this isn't really a grab bag, I guess, but it's more a response to some of the things from the last episode. Um, and I'm specifically responding to Michelle's discussion of the Gilbreths, Frank and Lillian Gilbreth. So I think the and, and time and sort of like the the origins of time. Um, so basically, I guess I'm just thinking of, so talking about Taylorism, because you mentioned, uh, like Taylor and then the Gilbreths is people that followed Taylor. These are things that I've, um, pretty often taught in some of the classes that I teach because they're really central figures for the history of. Taylorism and Fordism and kind of mid-century American transformation of time and transformation of labor. So I guess the way that I usually 
think about or have heard about people talking. And, and this is partially, I mean, there's a lot of interest, I, I'd say, in the Gilbreths. If, if there's a novelist named Tom McCarthy, a British novelist, uh, for instance, who has recently published a book called The Making of Incarnation, which is a novel about motion capture. But a big part of it is also linked with the, the Gilbreths and sort of like thinking of them as sort of the beginnings of motion capture in a lot of ways. But the way that I usually hear of, of the story of sort of scientific management is, is linked to changes in the factory system that were brought about with Henry Ford. And Henry Ford sort of like Fordism in the United States and how Ford basically really remade factory labor and how a big part of it was like Ford increased the wages of workers. He increased or decreased the amount of hours. And partially this was basically about like trying to get his workers to have enough money to buy his own cars. But a big part of that, even though jobs at Ford's factories were really in demand because of that, he really sort of like instrumentalized and reduced and de-skilled the workers on the assembly line even more so than before. Um, and it was extremely regulated, and that was where people like Taylor and the Gilbreths came in. Things like timing really specific motion movements and reducing the work, the labor of somebody on the assembly line to extremely repetitive motions, removing all emotion from, like there's something called the Fordist face, which was the idea if you were expressing emotion on the job, then that was a detriment to efficiency. Um, so it, it had to do with like really intensely managing the bodies of workers and turning them into machines effectively. And the Gilbreths are really important because they moved sort of this transformation of the factory into the home. And there's been a lot of histories about sort of automation and technology in the home, such as a book called like More Work for Mother, that argue that something like the management of time and scientific management in the home isn't so much that it actually made people more efficient or more productive. It just increased the amount of work that was expected of them. So the idea was in the redesigning of, say, the kitchen that Lillian Gilbreth did, um, in the introduction of things like dishwashers and other home appliances, it increased the actual labor and the amount of things that people were spending on household goods because the expectation became, well, you're not going to wash your clothes once every month because it takes so much time. It is, you're going to be washing your clothes even more, which would cause clothes to wear out faster and require things to be purchased more. So I think the thing is like the term of efficiency and how efficiency and how scientific management of efficiency transformed the home through the Gilbreths is I've usually heard it is ultimately a ruse that is about sort of causing people to work ever more, not making them quote unquote, like not reducing their work, but continuously adding more labor, more things that are going on in the home, more things in the factory, and also making sure that people are not really able to like do things on their own as part of the broader history of the alienation of an individual from their work, from sort of like doing things, skilled things with their hand, because fundamentally this idea of scientific management is about de-skilling. 
Um, so it was really interesting for me to hear the narrative about the Gilbreths and uh, thinking of that positively. And so I guess I guess this is just I want to hear like how to think about the sort of the centrality of that kind of technical rationality is really embedded in the present day um, in terms of how technology manages time. Um, the other thing that I add or comment on is at least from, again, similar body of people who talk about and think about the Gilbreth this way, about like the sort of beginnings of time, um, at least from kind of the perspective that I'm, I know pretty well, uh, the reason that it's sort of like the origins of time itself can't really be found is because it's linked with timekeeping. And of course, the beginnings of timekeeping is just something like the sun rising and sun setting. And so that would be sort of like the primordial technique for measuring time and things like the seasons. And it has to do with like cultivating and agriculture. Um, but anyway, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this is useful or not. Just things that I ended up thinking about and hearing the episode and uh, conversations that I've had after it. So I guess uh, this is more <laughs> like to use the obnoxious um, conference comment. I guess this is more of a comment than a question, but I would be interested to hear more about like the the sort of history of rationality in the home and how uh, timekeeping ends up being something that ends up like managing people and causing them to do more work because more is expected of them. I'm so excited by that. I don't know why he thought that was bad. That was great. I know. And also, yeah, this isn't it. We want, like you said, the grab bag is comments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. So, and I definitely, I hope that I didn't come across in the previous episode as like defending that narrative of the Gilbreth so much as just kind of how it no, was uncovered through the, okay just, yeah because no i was telling the story but and, I, what i loved about what you did was that by I, you weren't like being positive or negative but inherently you told like their personal story which i think made me at least feel very positively towards them well, and i also wonder because i completely and i did not bring this up in the episode but uh, a lot of the research that i was i was talking about reminded me of um how mcdonald's is different from other restaurants because they're using those same principles of like break all of the workers down into individual tasks and everybody is replaceable and it's this assembly line and then i don't know if you've seen the um the like biopic about the the guy who Ray Ray Kroc is that his name that founded that is oh, yeah. credited but he really kind of stole it from the these people who had started it first and then sort of took it out from under them and um it's a really interesting movie I don't know how close to the realities it is but they they do that thing where they like measure out like almost the efficiency triangle and that you know they want to minimize the movements that it takes to get the room here to here so that you can make this hamburger as quickly as possible and um I was just thinking about like what I have had so many jobs in my life we've talked about that you know on here right like I have worked at I've worked a lot of jobs um I started when I was like 13 and I often hold multiple jobs at a time. Um, so I did I did different fast food jobs and different service industry jobs. And McDonald's was 100% the worst job I ever had. And I Far only had away. it for like a month and a half. It made Same. me 
I, it was, it was, and we've, I know we've talked about it on here because I told my story about how McDonald's broke me um, and made me the effusive friend you have today. Um, so <laughs> thank you, McDonald's, but fuck you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. But fuck you. Um, no. So I, I, and the reason was because of that, that mentality of like, you do one task, you wrap cheeseburgers. You are not allowed to be a different cog yet because you have to master the wrapping of the cheeseburger. And, and it's exactly as, you know, Grant said in that, um, in the grab bag that it is removing the worker from the work that they are doing and turning them into this like very replaceable unskilled chunk that yeah so um and i almost brought up those but i didn't want to keep going last time so those connections were definitely already there what i'm really curious about is the personal motivations of the gilbreths like did they know that their efficiency was being used in this way to like dehumanize and um turn you know like focus on consumption or is that just what happens to everything <laughs> like i so i and i'm not i'm not defending them i have no idea I mean, what their personal motivations think, were but that's just no i tend to think right i was thinking about that too to be like well we'll never know how do we know and I, it's why i loved hearing the more of the personal story like of lillian who couldn't do what she had been doing and had to move to the kitchen because she was a woman even though she didn't have experience there and I, I tend to think it was just that's what they did well and they were interested in it. And just like, yeah, the capitalist society will always find a way to make it the worst version of it, right? For free? The, the, You're giving away those it. dogs for free? <gasps> dogs for free. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I, it does make me think about like why it, it just casts such a clear light on why McDonald's was the worst job you or and I have ever had. And you didn't get to move either, right? Yeah. They'd be like, well, yeah. you're you working in one today, spot. You can't, like, you're, you're not supposed there. to take any steps because you're just, everything is yeah. supposed to be within turn, like, you know, this much of a turn, which we know is terrible for bodies. We know yeah. that it, like, breaks down, you know, like, carpal tunnel syndrome, everything it does to the spinal cord. So much of the opioid industry is from back pain that is from repetitive motions that are, like, just what we do to yeah. bodies in the name of labor yeah, physically- is- Physically, what it does is terrible. Mentally, it's terrible. And and then in ways I didn't even realize about, like, if it's so de-skilled, right? They don't need you. Yeah. Um, I remember working a few years after I worked at McDonald's at Emo's. And usually the hardest job at a, or not even the hardest, but the best, or like they the, the job that is argued to be the most skilled is um, working the cash register, right? And the ordering machine. And that's where you someday maybe get to work your way up to, although it doesn't work that way. But at Emo's, it was very interesting to me that it wasn't the cash register. The hardest, most skilled job at Emo's was making sandwiches. And it was because nobody who ordered sandwiches at Emo's. You don't go to Emo's. Emo's is a pizza place. But a shocking amount of people ordered sandwiches. And Emo's had an insane wild huge sandwich menu and every sandwich had like 20 ingredients and you cook the sandwiches in the pizza oven but they didn't have that really written down anywhere or up anywhere because it would get in the way and you didn't want to get in the way of the pizza makers so the most skilled job at emos was making sandwiches because you had to memorize everything 
And you got to move the most because they didn't have a sandwich station because most of the ingredients were pizza ingredients. And then there were some sandwich ingredients. And I just remember also feeling valued in a way that they never did at any other fast food job because they're like, oh, Catherine's the sandwich maker. We need, we need, we have two we sandwich We need, you're, you're irreplaceable. They work different it would take, shifts. It would take somebody new months to memorize this menu. We can't. Yeah. Yep. Well, I had I, to train. I had to train the sandwich maker when I quit. I really like, enjoyed please? working. I mean, there were some like inner, there were some like interpersonal things at play that made it more complicated. But the actual work of working at Dairy Queen, that's the job that I did in high school, wasn't really satisfying like really satisfying. And I remember like we were often very understaffed, especially in the summer when everybody would be coming through. There was a time when I was working the drive-through and the front line. So I was taking orders from both. It was, that was not necessarily satisfactory. But there's but something to that. Right? There's something to like, yeah, there's something to like, body. here is a problem and I am the one who can solve it. And I remember like my favorite part of that job was looking up at the screen with all the orders and being like, what order do I need to do these tasks in to get them done in the way that is going to get things out the window the quickest or get things to people the quickest. And like, I would say like, oh, there's three banana splits coming up. So like being able to lay all the things out simultaneously and do it all, like it felt really good to be like, look at me efficiently figuring out this problem. But if they take that away from you and just turn it into stand here and wrap this sandwich, that's not, I mean, there's just. You can't get better at that. You can't problem solve that. And it's just wild how. Because you would think the work at McDonald's and Dairy Queen is not very different, but and it was world. very different. different, very different. At least then, I mean, that's been more than more than twenty years. So maybe one of the other has changed since then. But okay, are we ready to wrap all this up? Whew, yeah. Has this been longer than usual? We always say that though, and they always end up the same length. So I don't know. Yeah, I will say if the episodes are getting shorter, it's because sadly. Me being in Australia, the distance is the, the physical distance is actually affecting the tech. And I've been noticing I have been having to cut, cut. bigger and bigger sections of myself because it gets glitchy. So to the listeners, if you're noticing that or if maybe the editing seems worse or things aren't making sense, um, I'm having to cut more because I'm glitching out. Also, I just want to say if it ever seems like I'm talking very fast, like a micro machine guy, yeah, it's because it'll that, it'll lag and then it'll like yeah catch up all at once. I, I notice catch that up sometimes. Real fast. And um, yeah, that's not me just being hopped up every time we record. <laughs> I'm so really excited. excited. <laughs> yeah, little fun fun fact for longtime listeners: if it sounds like I'm talking fast, that means I have just edited out a huge glitch. So sometimes I re-record it, but I'm like, eh, that's a lot of work to get the mic yeah. and the sounds yeah. right. And it's, it's usually not for that long, right? Like it's just no. a little. You could, yeah, yeah, it usually makes sense. I talk and talk and talk, so I usually repeat myself. Um, yeah, let's wrap up. Okay, so weird thing. Gen Z won't share their feet with you. Not for free. Miss. No feet for free. No feet for um, free. I'd like that. Feet for free? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna start saying that randomly. Um my weird thing was devil sticks. They're weird. Um, uh, my pop culture thing was the mascots of Japan. I love seeing those. My pop culture thing was the reality TV show Hunted. 
That terrified me. Which I will not be applying for. This is the accomplishment of this whole podcast. My research thing was coincidences. And my research thing was more on the Gilbreths and their um their legacy on artistic photography. And our grab bag was more on the Gilbreths and how they brought the downfall of humanity. Yep. Okay. So clearly we were talking about already how we perceive time is something within that. Time and how we perceive it's perception, right? It's a bit of perception and how time adds to that. Cause right. There's like Edgar Allan Poe is a time traveler and coincidence is about how people perceive things. And it's about timing. Um, I, I'm thinking something about some of this is not something we talked about on the podcast, but we were talking about it before we started recording. And I feel like it fits sure. here. I'm just bringing it in anyway. Um, we've been talking about like the great resignation and the way that the perception of time feels off, like the way that time doesn't feel like it is moving the way that it used to move. But yeah. I feel like our relationship to work has changed. So I was thinking about what Grant said about how the, the initial like understanding of time came from the work that existed at that time. Right. That so like work is off time is off. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it, I mean that, that makes sense. Yeah. Right. With everything that we've been saying, because if the initial understanding of time was things like um, the sun rises and the sun sets and their seasons, and that's when we have to plant our crops, then as more and more demands change, like the, and yeah. then there were like time zones because there was, you know, the need to be able to exchange across. Like, so our work has shaped our perception of time. And so I feel like if time feels off now, it is coinciding with work feeling off and people being like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, Absolutely. And, and yeah. I feel like that connects um, with from the mascot thing where they're like if there's too many of them then it won't have value anymore and maybe we made it and kind of what Graham was saying if you make it so efficient that it actually takes the value out of the laborer um yeah. and coincidence is so much about like your experience in your body and then hunted is people like experiencing this but it's all artificial like i, I think there's something i will about say i that. think hunted hunted is one of the harder ones to fit in but i think it plays into that with there's like it's almost a joke at this point where like very overworked i think it is red is expressly like a feminine urge but like overworked women have a fantasy sometimes of like going to the hospital like i'm not i'm hurt not too badly. Just, just enough just that I have enough. to lay in bed for a week. Yeah. And I'm just out of touch for that week. And it seems like hunted is almost like a bonkers version of that fantasy. Like I'm on the run. I've done something terrible. So all of my commitments fall away. All I have to do is just not get caught. And that's life. Well, there and seems also something connected about that like, desire some, to just. Isn't it also like some weird take on work for the actual ex-cops and ex-researchers yes. who are pretending to be like. That, that feels like a weird commentary on your concept and the difference, of the difference between the hunters in the US who do not stop thinking of it as their work and the hunters in Australia who are like, this is a TV show now or affect needs to be a little different. 
and how that makes the two shows very different experiences. Yeah, I think they all fit. So it is about how work is changed. Work work is what changes our perception of time and and work has changed. So time has changed. <laughs> that makes me think of the devil six <laughs> video. Oh yeah. You're just tossing the stick back and forth. But I bet in that moment, he's like, oh, this has been doing this, this so long. Hard. <laughs> and just the, the cyclical thing about yeah. like, yeah, about, um, that being popular because it was it was popular in the 90s because it was popular in the 70s and the 90s were popular in the seven the 70s were popular in the 90s well and the yeah. gen z refusing to show their feet without pay like the like commodification of the body of, like yeah it makes me think of victorian ankles in a yeah. way but then it's for pay i love that so what do we want what is i feel like yes that the theme of work and time do we have a fun catchy way to sum that up have you heard, is it is it kendrick lamar the, the, hold on I'm, I'm just gonna play it for you okay it ain't free you looking at me like it ain't a receipt like i never made ends meat eating your leftovers and raw meat this dick ain't free living in captivity raised my cap salary celery telling me green is all i need evidently all i see was spam and raw sardines this dick ain't free i mean so i mean could it just be these dogs ain't free <laughs> these dogs ain't free i feel like that doesn't bring time does it quite in, does, i like yeah it. okay doesn't quite these get dogs there dogs ain't free But I do like that. I'm glad we had that moment. Free your time. The rest will no, nope. Free your time. The dogs like, will follow. Free, free your time. The dogs will free your time. Um, I was thinking about like all work and no play, and is there a version of like all work and no time? All work and no play makes time disappear. No, doesn't make it disappear, but change. Yeah. But that's not good. Um. These dogs ain't free. I, I like I like a fortune cookie that says these dogs ain't free. But everyone knows that we're talking. I feel like this issue, I feel like we've hit upon something very important about how work governs. Like in our world, work is it's not the sunrise, but the sun, even what you said, same with daylight savings. That was the work, right? Farming and agricultural work was the work of the time. Um, so it's always for humankind been work that has led our understanding of time. And, you know, that's a big statement to make. I don't know if that's entirely true, but it feels that way right now, sitting here in hour three of recording this podcast with you. So in two I feel like we need to find something yeah. in two different time, very different time zones. It's broad daylight where I am. Um, so I feel like we've hit upon something so big about how work governs our that that whole experience like we, of time. We owe it to, to make it, we owe it to make it clearer. Oh, I was going to say that we don't have to. Oh, we don't so, have to. It's the opposite. I was okay. going to say it was the exact opposite. <laughs> I was going to say we're so smart. We we're giving people two for. We made a we made a discovery about humankind today. <laughs> so these dogs ain't free. Dogs ain't free. And, oh, what we do is we practice what we preach, and we just put this behind a Patreon wall. <laughs> the, and that's the, that's the fortune cookie. Just the link to subscribe. Link to our Patreon. <laughs> these dogs ain't free. <laughs> No, no, 
Um, yeah, I like these dogs. These dogs ain't free. I like that. Are you sure? And we could. I do. I am sure. Okay. okay. And it can have bigger overlays of like free time. And what does that mean? And work. Because it also links so much to what we were talking about before we started recording. And I'm not going to like re, re go no. into it, but it just fits. It fits. These dogs. And you all know you're living in the same world we are. You know it fits. Yes. You understand. You are experiencing time and work in the same way. Almost everyone I talk to, like, like I don't, time is not happening the way that it did before. And it's not just that I'm getting older, so things are speeding up. It's There's some element of that, sure. But it's also just that, like, time doesn't make sense the way that it used to. Yeah, absolutely. I have so much to say about that, and I'm not going to keep rambling. But, like, yeah, I think that's so interesting. Okay. These dogs ain't free. These dogs ain't free. Although my, my actual toes will remain out. Oh, yes. Our dogs are free. <laughs> Our dogs are forever free. Our dogs, the proverbial dogs are not. Michelle and I's dogs roam free forever. See them whenever you want. I can't. I have very wide feet. I have very wide feet. I have to wear Birkenstocks. I'm not squeezing them into those uncomfortable shoes, and I'm not wearing socks. In fact, free the dogs. Free them. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.